And what a, what a privilege to be asked to uh, speak from the book of Exodus this morning. Let me just ask you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter, uh, chapter 40, which is on page 80. And I, I actually am not going to read the whole passage at the beginning. I'm, we're going to work through it. I'm going to read it as we go. And the reason for that is I think some of what happens at the end of the chapter is kind of surprising. And I, I want to let the suspense build for us uh, a little bit um, this morning. I admire this church for doing the whole book of Exodus. Uh, a lot of people, when they do the book of Exodus, they maybe do up to chapter 14, you know, where, where they escape th through the Red Sea, or maybe up to chapter 20 where you get the Ten Commandments. But then it's challenging to do the second half of the book. It's challenging to preach the second half of the book. And uh, so uh, I just have much respect to all of you uh, this morning for, for reaching this point in a, in a kind of spiritual pilgrimage. What an amazing story the Exodus is. You have this great villain, Pharaoh, the genocidal maniac. You have some great heroes, particularly Moses and also his brother Aaron. Um, you have some amazing dialogue. The, the conversations that Moses has with Pharaoh and the give and take and how that relationship develops. Uh, the conversations that Moses has with God and what he says he will do and what he won't do and why and, and that give and take. Um, amazing special effects in the book of Exodus. Um, a burning bush, all of these plagues, creepy bugs, um, all of that's amazing. Some really surprising turn, twists and turns in the plot. Um, so there's this promise that God's going to deliver his people, and Moses decides to do that one Egyptian at a time. Uh, you'll remember he kills, a, kills a, 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 one of the slave masters, and that sets him back 40 years in God's plan. I mean, it's just an amazing story in all of these ways. And you've, you've got the sands of Egypt and the pyramids and Mount Sinai. And what an amazing story it is. And you'll remember that the story began with people in slavery and far from their home, but with God having a plan to save those people and, and do a work of grace in their lives, a rescue from Egypt that would lead them to the promised land. And hopefully you've picked up by now, there was a reason why God did this. And the reason was because he wanted people to see what a glorious God he is. This is a book that's all about God saving people for his glory. He wanted the Egyptians to see it. He wanted the Israelites to see it. He really wanted the whole world to see it. And he wants us to see it as, as we read this book. And um, this, this desire that God has for his glory is just driving the story forward. Why is it so important that the Israelites would be delivered from slavery? Well, slavery is wrong in itself. It's wrong to oppress people. But also because God wants people to see his glory, the glory that comes when he rescues people and gives them freedom. And... When the people are saved in this way, they give God the glory. They, um, one of the things I like to say about the story of salvation in the Bible, it's, it's a kind of a drama, but it's always a musical. That's the kind of drama it is. Because it's not, it's not enough for God to save people. He also wants to be praised for saving people. And so he always puts a song into the hearts of his people. And, and we see that in Exodus chapter 15. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. And so you have this great desire that God has 
to rescue his people in a way that shows his glory. And Moses, I think, very clearly understood what the purposes of God were. Maybe not at the beginning, but he comes more and more to see what God is up to. And one of the reasons I think we know that is because when you get to chapter 33 and Moses is up on the mountain, he says, now God, show me your glory. Uh, he understands that God's purpose is that his glory will be seen and he wants that. He wants to enter into that. And, and yet it's interesting through the story, God is showing his glory, but it's always just more than you can actually perceive. So chapter 24, they renew the covenant. The elders of Israel, 70 elders go up on the mountain with, uh, with Moses and the Bible says that they're going to see God's glory. But when it's described, it's only the pavement underneath the feet and even the pavement, even the ground that God is standing on, even that is glorious. And, and you get this sense that he's glorious, but it's beyond what you can actually perceive. Or when Moses says, show me your glory, you'll remember God, God places him in this place in the rock and covers him up. And so actually all that he gets to see is like the, the trailing edge of God's glory or the backside of God's glory after God has passed by. It's, there's this invitation to see the glory of God and yet it's, it's beyond what we can actually perceive. And we haven't had that moment yet where we fully come into the presence of God's glory. And that's why I think chapter 40 is such an amazing climax to the book. Uh, you know, some, some people that... Um, don't, aren't really convinced that the Bible is the Word of God and yet study the, the Word of God, a certain kind of scholar that does that. One of the things people will say about Exodus is, well, you know, this is actually really two or three books that were kind of put together. It's not a com complete story from beginning to end. One of the reasons they say that is because you have the story of the deliverance from Egypt, but how does that fit together with all this tabernacle stuff that comes later on? And isn't it a little kind of anticlimactic. I mean, you have this amazing deliverance, which we, we saw a little, we see a little glimpse of right there, and that's so famous. But then if people asked you, okay, well, what's in Exodus 27? Or, you know, what's in Exodus 36? You'd, you'd kind of think, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what I... So the book, in one sense, has a climax, and then it's a little anticlimactic, unless you understand that the whole point of the book comes in Exodus 40 which is why this is a really important chapter for us uh, to understand. So um, let, let me just rem remind you one other little detail here about, um, the, about something that God had promised. Because in, in chapter 29... And, and you'll, you'll probably remember this. There are a lot of, a lot of Exodus is a lot of blueprints. You, you have a lot of instructions for how to build the tabernacle, which get repeated, which I think as a preacher, as you go through it, you're like, you know, maybe once would have been enough. Do we really have to have, you know, here, here are the instructions and then here's how they fulfilled the instructions. But in the middle of that, in chapter 29, in verse 45, God says this, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and I will consecrate Aaron and his sons. This is chapter 29, verse 45. Consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then what? Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is a promise. God is saying, I, here's what I will do. I will do this. 
And what he will do is come near to his people and have relationship with him in this tabernacle that they are building. And so we have this sense of anticipation. Is, this, is God really going to make good on this promise? What's it going to be like when God actually comes to dwell in this building? And by the time you get to chapter 40, the, uh, the Israelites have very carefully followed God's instructions. They've made these tent poles and these curtains and the, all these things made out of bronze or gold. They, they've made all of these things, but th they still have this question, is God actually going to make good on his promise to come and live with us? And that's the sense of anticipation we have as we come to chapter 40. Now, uh, with the tabernacle, some assembly was required. So this is a little bit like Christmas morning, and something has to be put together, and this is the chapter where things get put together. Here's what God says to Moses, chapter 40, verse 1. Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Now let me just pause and say that timing is very significant the first day of the first month, this is the one year anniversary of Israel's exodus from Egypt. It is one year to the day when the people came through uh, the Red Sea and crossed through on, on dry land. That's, that's day one for, for Israel in terms of its, its history. Even to this day, things are dated that way uh, in the Jewish community. And so um, one way to look at that is everything you've had, I don't know how many sermons it's been since Exodus 14, 40, 60 sermons, that's just one year in the life of the people of God uh, as this story unfolded. And God is making a connection. I delivered you on this day. Now we are at the day when my purpose for saving you will be revealed. There's a connection between that miracle and what is about to be, perhaps you might think of it as uh, a, a miracle. It's not just getting out of Egypt that God is interested in. It's actually getting into relationship with his people. And that's important for us to think about in the Christian life as well, because it's not just sort of repent for my sins, know that I have eternal life. Um, and then I, I can just sort of go around about the rest of my life knowing, okay, yeah, you know, one day I'll, I'll have that salvation. God actually wants to enter into relationship. That's the point of his deliverance from sin so that you would come into a closer friendship and relationship with him. That, that's what he is after. That's the desire of his heart. So God gave the instruction here to build the tabernacle and Moses very carefully follows uh, the instructions he was given, and he he builds the tabernacle from the inside out. Um, and I'll just pick up reading in, in verse 3 here, the general instructions. Place the ark of the testimony in it and shield the ark with the curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the ark of the testimony and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle. So now, now uh, he's moving outside the, the, the main tent. And the main tent, Paul and I were talking about it. I mean, it was about the size of this building. I mean, this, it's, the tabernacle is not some huge thing. It's, it's, it's pretty, pretty small, pretty compact. And here are the things that go outside it. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it. So there's a kind of perimeter around the tabernacle and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Once he had set up the tabernacle, Moses was to set it apart, to anoint it for sacred service. And so God gave these further instructions in verse 9. Take the anointing oil, 
and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. And in this way, the tabernacle... And all its furnishings were to be dedicated to God. Um, And God is giving further instructions, uh, following on to all the instructions that he had given about how to make make the tabernacle. Then it's not just this building that needs to be set apart. It's also those leaders who offer sacred service in the tabernacle. And so you have a kind of ordination service here beginning in verse 12. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him and consecrate him so he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics, anoint them just as you anointed their fathers so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue for all generations to come. And so here are these men who are set apart for holy service of God. And Um, You might think, okay, that's probably enough for us. I mean, we kind of have the general picture here. Those are the instructions. But I think it's very encouraging to see what happens in verse 16 because the Bible says Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. And I say that's encouraging because there are all kinds of examples in the Bible where people are told to do something and they don't do it. So it's kind of encouraging when you just see, okay, here's somebody that actually did what God told him to do. So uh, that's encouraging in itself. And then following that, following that general instruction, the Bible takes the time to show Moses putting each piece carefully into place. And just stop to think, well, wh- why would that be? Um, I mean, couldn't, actually verse 16 tells us Moses did everything that he was, he was told to do, but the Bible now takes the time to go through all of this piece by piece. And I, I can think of a couple of reasons for that. One is it's going to give us an opportunity just to think a little bit about what each of those pieces were, just so we can remember what these different things in the tabernacle were. But I think also, very uh, artfully, the scripture is building a sense of suspense. You're, you're, you're wanting to get to that moment where you have a relationship with God and he is actually present and you are there with him. But the story drags it out a little bit to build that sense of anticipation. Um, Maybe to give an example, um, we we celebrated a birthday at our house yesterday, and we didn't quite do this, but I can imagine um, your child's really excited to open those presents, and you just draw out the suspense just a little bit more, and that sense of anticipation builds. Exodus 40, I think, is that that kind of chapter. Will God really come down and meet with his people in glory? So Moses started with the tabernacle, with the tent, 
This is the, the dwelling place for God, and the point of that is pretty obvious because people live in a tent, and now here is a tent which is for God, and that, that's a sign that he is actually going to live in presence with his people. And so Moses sets it up in verses 18 and 19. He sets up the tabernacle, he puts the bases in place, and then there are the frames, and then the crossbars and the posts. If you've ever gone camping, you know you know it's one piece into another piece, and then finally you, you put the, the covering over the tent as the Lord had commanded him. So Moses pitches the tent of meeting. But the glory did not yet come down. So then the prophet, this is in verse 20, takes the testimony and places it in the ark. And as you may remember, there are poles that hold up the ark so that you don't have to actually touch the sacred ark. And he brings the ark inside the tent and he hangs the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And he's doing what the Lord commands him. Here's the this most important part of the tabernacle, the, the most holy place. And the ark of the covenant, you may remember, represents God's dwelling place. It has... It has angels on the cover of it. And that's, if you look at biblical language, there are angels that surround the throne of God. Here's an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. And inside goes the covenant. So the Ten Commandments are in there, the laws of God. This is showing God's authority over his people, his, his right to command the people. And it's also showing his grace because you'll remember that the ark was covered with the mercy seat and that's the place where the blood was sprinkled to show that forgive, atonement had been made for sin and forgiveness was applied to the people. And so, so Moses put the ark of the covenant in the holy of holies. But the glory did not yet come down. Then he set up some of the other furniture, the furniture that went in the holy place, the holy place outside the most holy place. And there was a table there, a table for the showbread. Moses put that in the tent of meeting, verse 22, on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the curtain. He set out the bread on it before the Lord. Here was what is the Bible calls the bread of the presence, which is an offering to God in which the priests ate at the end of each week. It's, it's partly a reminder of God's provision. I'm a God who really will care for your daily needs. I'm going to give you your daily bread. But it's also God's way of saying, I want to have fellowship with you. We're going to sit around a table together. We're, we're going to share communion together. And so Moses put the bread on the table and he stood back. The tent was there. The Ark of the Covenant was there. Now the table was there for the showbread but the glory did not yet come down. Then the prophet set up the golden lampstand. Verse 24, the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table, it was on the south side of the tabernacle. He set up the lamps before the Lord. And, and so here was this lampstand and it was flickering with light showing that in creation and in redemption, God is the source of all light. You may remember this golden lampstand had buds and blossoms on it. It was a, was a kind of tree of life and also a tree of light. It, it's reminding us of the Garden of Eden and the tree of life there. Um, it's showing us that God is the source of all life and all light. And Moses put the candles in place and now the lampstand was casting light inside the tent of meeting. But the glory did not come down. Next it was time to set up the altar of incense. It was between the table for the bread and the lampstand next to the Holy of Holies, the golden altar in the tent of meeting. And 
he burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Moses, he's not just constructing something. He is worshiping God. He is entering into the worship of God as he puts the tabernacle into place. And he sets up the, puts the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Here was a sweet altar of prayer. Prayers were now rising up to God like sweet fragrance from this altar of incense. Here are the first prayers offered in the house of God. But the glory does not come down. Then we step outside the tabernacle. And there's more furniture to put out in the, the courtyard. This is, uh, this is a little bit like the porch outside your house, and you may have some furniture out there. I mean, really, it's like that, because, because God is building a home for himself with his people that is like the little homes that they have, the tents that they have that are scattered around the wilderness. And, and so it, it's meant to be somewhat similar to that kind of home setting. And Moses put up the big bronze altar of sacrifice, the altar of burnt offering, verse 29. It's near the entrance to the tabernacle. And Moses starts to, starts to offer the offerings that go there, burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord had commanded him. If you had been there on that day and you had been sort of watching Moses do all this, it's a little bit like... Um, it's a little bit like if you go camping with uh, little kids and they can't really do much to help, but they kind of want to see what's going on. I mean, it's exciting to see, particularly if it's frustrating for you, it's interesting for them. And um, so they're gathered around watching you put up this tent. You can imagine the people of Israel gathered around watching Moses do these things. And he, now this big altar is put in place and offerings are being offered there and smoke is rising as, as these offerings of thanksgiving are put into place. And now... Things are ready for sacrifices of atonement to be offered on the altar, atoning for Israel's sin. The burning altar in place, but the glory of God did not yet come down. Then Moses set up the bronze basin, verses 30 to 32. It's the basin that goes between the tent of meeting and the altar. He filled it with water. Gallons and gallons. I can't remember how many gallons it is, but it's a lot. It's a big basin. And that's where Moses and Aaron and his sons would wash their hands and feet anytime they were entering in for worship. This is a place of cleansing. It symbolizing, symbolizes the cleansing power of God's grace, the purity that is required for his service. And all of that's in place. But you guessed it. The glory did not come down. Then Moses put up a fence and formed a courtyard around the tabernacle. It separated this tabernacle from the rest of camp. It showed how holy God was. You set apart from sinners. You can't just kind of wander into the tabernacle on your own. There's a fence around it. Only certain people can come in only at certain times. But there is a curtain, which means that there's an entrance which means that there is a way for people to approach God in his holiness. This is how Moses set up the tabernacle, and you get the summary verse in verse 33. And so Moses finished the work. He did everything right, just the way that God wanted it to be done. There's only one thing missing, which is the thing that everybody wants to see, and that is the glorious presence of God. And Moses can't set that in place. He can only follow God's instructions for how this place is to be built, but only God can fill it with his glory. Now we get to the reveal. It's a little bit like those, uh, if you watch any of those home shows on TV where people flip a house or redesign a house, they, they, as the story 
as, as you watch the program, you get little glimpses of what it's going to look like at the end. I mean, they give you kind of, here's our plan, and then you, but it's not until the end of the show that you actually get to see what the, what it looks like. And that's, that's how this chapter is set up, and it's the same principle of suspense that builds. The last curtain was tied to the last fence post. The prophet stepped away. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, verse 34, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Here is God's presence and seal of approval and absolute blessing on his people. He now finally comes down in glory. Now people had seen little glimpses of this along the way. They, they saw that, that pillar of cloud and fire that protected them from Pharaoh's army and then guided them through the wilderness. They, they had seen the miracle of the Red Sea and that was a, that was, that was a glorious triumph. But it, Moses says it here in the book of Exodus. There, there was glory revealed in how God delivered his people from the Egyptians. They had seen glory in the fire and the smoke on the mountain. And, and Moses had seen that, that backside of, of the glory of God up on, on Mount Sinai. But the, the Israelites had not yet seen the glory come down to earth in the fullness of its radiant splendor as it did when it was entering into the tabernacle and filling that whole sacred space with glory. This is what a, a theologian would call a theophany. A theophany, a visible manifestation of God's invisible glory. There's a sense in which we can't see the glory of God as it is, but God makes it visible in visible form. And, and here is a resplendent cloud of radiant light filling everything in that space with, with glory. And it's interesting, this, the word that's used here for, for filling, filling the tabernacle, it's not, it's not so much um, it, it has the idea of something that's repeated and ongoing. So it's not like I filled this glass and then it's just the water just, is just sitting there. It's a continuous filling. It's almost as if this, this tent or tabernacle is pulsating with this radiant glory of God. There's something dynamic about the glory of God that is filling uh, the, the temple of the Lord. And now the the God that we have met all through this story, and we've seen so much about him, his power to deliver people and his, his wisdom to guide people, his justice to judge people, the, his, his mercy to forgive people, his holiness and purity, all of those things. Now there is a revelation of everything that God is in, in his totality. And if, if you were there standing, one of those people that had, that's watched Moses put all of this into place, what you would say is this, God is in the house. Uh, that's, that's what has happened here. The living God in all of his power and glory. And then here is what is so surprising. It's not surprising that the glory comes down. I mean, that, that was promised. And so the, it's an exciting ending, but it's, it's kind of an expected ending. I mean, it's, it's what's been promised all along. But let me just remind you, the whole purpose of the tabernacle was that here was a place where people could actually meet with God. God is going to live in this place and 
There's a way to enter. There's a doorway. There's a curtain. There's a way that you can go through. And, and the whole thing is, is set up so that you can actually come in and, and meet with God. And, and that's obvious because when you come into the courtyard, there's a place where you can actually get forgiveness for your sins, where you can have cleansing so that you're pure. And uh, there's a, a, a curtain so that the priest can enter into the holy place and then even into the most holy place. I mean, this here is the one place in the whole world where God says, now here's the doorway. Here, here's the, the access, here's the portal. Here's the entrance place where you can come and actually meet with me and we're going to be here together. But when the glory comes down, Moses can't get in. Access is denied. It's, it's too overwhelmingly glorious. The Bible says, verse 35, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I, I don't know what to. I don't know if you call this irony. I, I suppose it's kind of ironic. Um, it's mystery for sure, and I think it is telling us something very deep about who we are, and who God is, and also about where we are in the story of actually entering into the presence of God. The whole book has been moving to this climactic moment. The tabernacle would be finished. People would be able to meet with God. But then when the moment finally came, God was so glorious that the mediator could not enter in. This surely shows how necessary it is for anyone who wants to meet with God to come with a blood sacrifice for sin. And uh, I don't suppose you're going to go on and do Leviticus. Not anytime soon. But Exodus leads right into Leviticus. And what do you have, you know, through all the opening chapters of Leviticus? It's all about how you make atonement for sin. What kind of offering you bring. Where you put the blood. I mean, there's a lot of that in Leviticus. And, and obviously you're going to need that because there's still an obstacle to, to, to coming to God because of His amazing holiness and, and glory. And this initial denial of entrance, it's in its only initial, is I think again reminding Moses and the people of God of the need for atonement. We also learn that God is way more glorious than we could ever expect or imagine. I mean, the people of Israel, they had, they had seen some pretty good glimpses of the glory of God. I mean, they had seen amazing miracles. If anybody in the world could have testified to the glory of God, it would have been the people of God under Moses. But you know, after a while... You get a little bit used to God. He gets a little familiar. Yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God. I, you know, I kind of have that. I kind of know that. And you get complacent with it. And here is a revelation of the glory of God where even the people in Israel that had gotten kind of familiar with God's deliverance and protection and guidance, they had to just step back and worship. And just worship Praise God. Glory to God. That's, that's something far above anything I could have expected or seen or, or, or imagined. This is the glory of the majesty of God in his triune being. The dangerous, overwhelming manifestation of his glory. I think it's fair to say Moses knew God better than any person in the entire world. And yet when the glory comes down... He's not going to enter there. He's going to stand back and, and worship and just say, that's, that's a glory beyond me. And I think Exodus, to some degree, ends for us with a little bit of a loose end 
Because it's clear that God wants us to have a relationship with him and wants us to come into his glory. But we're not yet here at the end of Exodus where all of that has come together in its complete and total and final fulfillment. The great and glorious God of the Exodus is a God who, and this is the way Paul describes it for Timothy, lives in unapproachable light. That's, a, that's how Paul talked about the glory of God. And yet, notice as well, this surprise, given how glorious God is, the very last words in the book of Exodus, in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. God was with his people constantly, never leaving them wherever they went from one place to another. This glorious God did not come down in glory and then say, okay, yeah, this was a mistake. I'm much too glorious for you. He stayed with his people in all of his glory and was with them in all of their journeys, all of their pilgrimage, so that he could give them all the blessings of his grace. And here's this amazing mystery. Here's how a theologian would talk about it. You, You have both the nearness of God and the exaltedness of God. You have both the imminence of God, meaning he's really close, he's right there, but you also have the transcendence of God. He's up there, he's, he's far above, he's, he's out of reach. And both of those things are true and both of them are, are, are present here. God didn't just bring his people out of Egypt and say, okay, you know, my work here is done, uh, you know, enjoy the wilderness and you're on your own now. Um, No, God wants to have this relationship with his people and so he stays with them and he cares for them. And this gave them such great comfort and confidence for the future. You may remember, uh, I don't have chapter and verse in mind, but there's that point in the story here where it seems like God is, and this is, I guess, after the golden calf, God says, you know, I've rescued here, but I'm, I'm not actually going to go with you to the promised land. And Moses says, if you're not going, we're not going. Um, and here's the assurance and promise and comfort of God's blessing that he's going to stay with his people every step of the journey, leading them day and night. And I want to I close by leaving you with this thought that what God does for you and has done for you in Jesus Christ is much more than this. Much more than this. And what he has promised you is the fulfillment, the actual real in-person fulfillment of everything that God promised to people under the days of, uh, uh, under the days of Moses. What happens in Exodus is so famous that people are still talking about it today. I mean, they even make movies about it uh, today. It doesn't even come close to the glorious things that God has done for us. Here's the climax of the Exodus. And it's only, it's only like a glimpse or a glimmering of, of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Moses of our salvation, who is the mediator who brings us into the presence of God. He's the lamb of the Passover, the sacrifice for our sins. He's the blood on the wood that that makes the angel of death pass by. He's, He's the way out of Egypt who 
baptizes us in the sea of His grace. He's our bread in the wilderness. When, when Jesus came to bring bread, people said, our father Moses gave us bread in the wilderness. Jesus said, I'm the bread. Uh, you haven't tasted anything yet. Here, here's the bread for, for you. Jesus is the voice from the mountain giving us the true law of God, the will of God for our lives. He's the altar of our burning through whom we offer up praise to God. He's the light on the lampstand, the source of all life and light. He's the basin of cleansing who sanctifies our souls. He's the great high priest. He's the one offering prayers on the altar of incense, even to this very moment. He's the blood on the mercy seat. His blood is what brings us to God through atonement, through reconciling atonement. And it's like all of the amazing things that happen in this story, they all come together in one person offering one salvation. It's like it takes all of the exodus just to give you the categories for thinking about the salvation that this one Savior offers. And all of that is available to you today. Whatever, whatever your situation in life is. Uh, there may be some here feeling like you need guidance, direction. There's a decision that's right in front of you or you have a sense personally or as a family there's a decision that we're working towards and we really don't know what the direction is. And I want to encourage you to come to God in prayer and say, God of Moses, God of Moses who guided your people through the wilderness, will you give us the wisdom and direction that, that we need? Maybe what you need is provision because uh, times are hard, circumstances are difficult. And you can go to the same God of Moses and say, God of Moses, who provided daily bread for your people in the wilderness. I mean, these, these stories are in the Bible partly so that we know who God is and how to call upon him in our time of need and, and have a sense of who he is and his character and his promises. God of Moses, who provided for your people in the wilderness, provide for our daily needs. Uh, give us today what, what we need. Uh, maybe you're burdened and weighed down by sin. Maybe, honestly, a sin you really haven't confessed, not in the sense of repenting in the way that you want to turn away from it. But the God of Moses, who provided atoning blood for his people in the wilderness and now offers blood through the sacrifice of his son, uh, wants to forgive you. He's ready to receive it. You, you don't need to kind of uh, crawl back to the cross. You should run back to the cross with your sins uh, so that you may find forgiveness. Jesus is all of that. All of the things that are in this story that we need in a God, Jesus is all of that for us. And he is also this. He is the glory in the tabernacle. This was true from the moment of his conception. The Bible teaches that the physical body of Jesus Christ is the dwelling place of God. God was pleased, the scripture says, to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. He himself is this living tabernacle that is the fullness of God. And it would have to be that because Jesus is God the Son and one of the divine attributes is glory. And so if Jesus full divine attributes. He's going to have to display the glory of God even in his physical person. The Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you probably know that's a tabernacling word uh, in, the, in the vocabulary that John chooses. And we have seen what? His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father in truth. 
if God is going to be there and dwelling, he's going to come with his glory. That, that's, that's the point of what John says in, in, John chapter, in John chapter 1. The scripture says, this is Hebrews chapter 1, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. People couldn't always see that during his earthly time. Veiled in his humanity, his divine glory was not always revealed, but you go with the disciples up the Mount of Transfiguration. It's almost like God, God can't help himself. Disciples, you just got to see, I just have to show you how glorious my son is. And who's there when Jesus is glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses is there. He's the, he's the glory prophet. And, and, and Jesus and Moses and also Elijah, they're talking about the exodus, the deliverance. Uh, all of this glory is coming to fulfillment in, in Jesus Christ. The disciples in that moment could see outwardly what had always been true inwardly, that Jesus radiates the resplendent glory of God. And when the disciples started to see how glorious Jesus was, they just fell down and worshiped. Think of Thomas, how skeptical he was, how doubtful he was. But when he saw the risen Christ, my Lord and my God, that's all he could say. Uh, he had seen what the Bible calls the, surpa- the surpassing glory. Jesus Christ, risen and glorified. And it is the purpose of God that you would see this glory. That you would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Not, not in kind of a spiritual sense, but physically, visibly, This is part of the promise of our own resurrection and of the coming of Jesus Christ at his second coming and the gathering of all of his people that we would see that one thing which human beings were designed and destined to see. The one thing that there is in our hearts a deep longing to see, although not as much longing as there might be. And that's something that Exodus can awaken for us a desire to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the hope that gives us the courage to walk through a long pilgrimage with the Israelites through the book of Exodus, to face all of the challenges we're facing in life right now, and to be faithful to the very end. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise that you have a purpose for us that is glorious, a purpose for us that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Help us to see his glory in a spiritual way. Help us to long for more of his glory and bring us to that place, Lord, where we will see it for ourselves. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and for his sake. Amen.